Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Idle Australians with James and Asha. Idle Australians with James and Asha. Idle Australians with James and Asha. Let's get the show going, boys. James, we do have a new theme song. I, I played yes. you a protoplasmic version of it. What do you think of it? It's very rock and roll. As requested. Yes. I think I said high energy. That's what you got. It feels like if you'd hired a rock and roll band from like mid 2004. Yeah. 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 Perfect. Yeah. It, great. Unreal. So we'll just put a fancy voiceover on it and then by next week, boom, top of the charts. I don't want you to feel like I've alienated you though, that I've thrust aside your hard work. It wasn't hard work. I knew I needed a 15-second long jingle. I spent 30 seconds picking the guitar up off the wall behind me. I sat down and I played that song and I made it up as I sang it and that was it. I went and saw a stage show like when you did your book launch Yeah, and you had made up songs about times in your life. Yeah. And it felt like similar chord structure. <laughs> it was it did. It was a little different to that that particular song you're talking about. It was a different key. <laughs> it was a different key. <laughs> but yeah. Oh, sorry, you texted me before and the answers are yes, I have had a vasectomy. And yeah, it was just a day surgery and it was a bit sore for a while, but that's about it. But what- the lines are blurring. The lines are now blurring between what I tell you outside of the podcast and what is now content within the podcast. Do you not want to talk about vasectomies on this show? No, I'm I'm not saying that explicitly. I'm just saying that not always sure what I tell you, whether it's going to be between us or our many oh. listeners out there. But yes. People don't need to know why you're asking me. You might have just been asking me, how are your balls? And they're not as sore as they used to be. It took a little mm. while for the soreness to go away. In the 20 years of knowing you, I, I don't think that sentence has ever been offered. <laughs> I've ne- never posed that question to you. Hey, hey, brother, how's your balls? <laughs> how them balls going? The left one was sore for a while. Okay. But what they don't tell you is that it doesn't work straight away. Wait a minute. Which part of your body doesn't work straight away? The vasectomy isn't effective as birth control straight away because there's still a couple of intrepid soldiers waiting their turn in the pipes. And I was recovering from the anaesthetic and I'm lying there in that weird smock and I couldn't really feel much because there was still a local anaesthetic going on. And Audrey was in the room. Wolfie was there. She was there when I came around. And the surgeon came in, classic 
big kind of dick swinging energy, walks in and goes, yeah, it went really well. It's really great. Thrust a specimen jar into my hand and he said, ejaculate 20 times. The 21st one goes in there. Once I've given you the all clear, then you can go ahead and have sex without a condom, but not before. All right, have a good day. Wait, and so you have to do that while he's in the room? <laughs> like you can't leave until you've ejaculated 21 times? I'm not, I'm not a teenager anymore. Like, <laughs> But, yeah, he, he said no. You've got to fire 20 rounds. Unload? You've got to fire 20 rounds and you got to make sure. You know how in, in movies sometimes they, they keep firing the gun? It keeps going click, 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 click. So you've got to do that 20 times. The 21st goes in the jar, and then they look at it under the microscope to make sure there's no no swimmers there. I Yeah, I just feel like we don't want to have any more kids. We've got two amazing children, and we're done. We're done. Two's great. We've got two. They're brilliant. But Wolfie was doing something really cute the other day, and Audrey went, oh, do you remember when he was a really little baby? I said, yeah. She goes, wouldn't it be nice to have them? No. <laughs> no, I wouldn't. I get why people keep having them. Because they're really cute. It's addictive. Like small children are addictive. I think they There's work on commission, gets, don't they? You get some some sort of uh, hormones get released, surely, when you hold a baby. They make you think, oh, I want to have another one. That's a natural part of our evolution, surely. Has to be. Has to be. My sister had four kids and her husband got the procedure done and um, they were done. We don't want any more. We want to yeah. nip this in the bud. Yeah, they nipped it in the bud, and then you know those sort of things started happening. They're looking at babies. Yeah. They were saying, "Oh, we could have another one." So he got it undone. He got it undone. The knot untied or the snip reassembled. Yes, and they had another one. Wow, the surgeon did sit me down, and that the longest part of the entire procedure was the com- consultation. But he asked me, like, now, are you absolutely sure? Are you 100% sure? I said, mate, I'm, at the time, I said, mate, I'm 45. I just had a kid. I'm not, I'm not going to have any more. He goes, well, some blokes, you know, they, they end up in their 50s with a new partner and they get a bit hot-headed. I'm like, and I said to him, it's like, I'm tired enough chasing after, at the time, she was 15. So I'm tired enough chasing after my 15-year-old now. I don't want to be doing that in my 70s. No, forget it. I'm ready. So thanks for the advice and thanks for sharing it with um, the nation unsolicited. <laughs> that was um, really kind and um, unnecessary. However, I'm glad we explored what what, what can happen. If you want more mm. uh, updates on James Matheson's testicles, uh, idleaustralians at gmail.com. No, they've, they've got their own uh, Instagram now. They've, <laughs> they've got their own social media channel, so just follow and them. You know what's amazing? They just booked... <laughs> they just booked an influencer campaign with Queensland Tourism, so they're going on holiday, but you're staying here. My testicles are getting more work than I am. That's amazing. Is anyone surprised? <laughs> no. Is anyone surprised? You mentioned evolution earlier. I'm fascinated with evolution. I'm fascinated with how long it takes, sometimes thousands, sometimes millions of years, for organisms to adapt to new environments. But there's one particular organism in our environment that has adapted so incredibly well, it's kind of changed our cities in a remarkable, remarkable way. In many ways, they are deities. They are responsible for maintaining the universe. They judge the dead. They oversee systems of magic, of writing, 
of science. They are carved into the rocks on the walls of Egyptian tombs. You know what I'm talking about? Uh, no. <laughs> if I say the word Thoth, the god Thoth, does that ring a bell? There's Thoth the bird-headed, yes. pharaoh-y, yes. beaky guy. And what kind of bird is Thoth? A beaky birdie? <laughs> yes, a beaky bird. How long is the beak and what colour is the bird? Uh, yeah. <laughs> it's black and an ibis? It's an ibis? It is an ibis. Thoth. The god responsible for maintaining the universe, judging the dead, and overseeing systems of magic, writing, and science. The god Thoth is indeed the Ibis. The Bin Chicken is an ancient deity? A highly powerful and revered one. <laughs> I love it. I love it. I mean, it's a, the, the show is about, you know, Australian culture and... I mean, the, the, of all the birds that exist in this nation, they play a, a powerful role in many ways. It's sort of love them or hate them when it comes to the ibis. They're not. They, when you talk about emus, everyone loves an emu. Everyone loves a golden-crested cockatoo. Everyone loves a bloody lorikeet. I love a rainbow lorikeet. But the, but the ibis, that divides people. It splits them right down the middle. When I was growing up, and I'm sure when you're growing up, Ibis weren't all over the city, and then slowly over time, they have invaded to the mm. point where today, when Wolfie was down the park, Audrey had to go into full fighting stance to get four of them away from his little backpack where his snacks were, and these Ibis had figured out how to undo the clasps on his little backpack, and they were going at his lunchbox. They knew exactly which part of the bag. They weren't going for the nappies. They're going for the hermetically sealed lunchbox because they knew that's where the food was. Oh, they're clever. They're clever. I've seen them crack a combination lock <laughs> on a uh, businessman's suitcase. That, I mean, they're the only bird that I've ever seen in, in one foul swoop steal a hot chip from a family's picnic plate and then turn around and steal a lit cigarette at the hand of an Irish backpacker. I mean, that's the type of... Just single-mindedness that the Ibis has. I don't care what it is. If you've got it, I want it. <laughs> they want it in their mouth. What? They want it in their mouth. They want it in their mouth. Kids seem to be fascinated with the Ibis, you know, the bin chicken. What else do they call them? I think in Brisbane they call them something else, don't they? Or are they bin chickens around the country? The tip turkeys in Brisbane. Tip turkey, yeah. They never used to be at the rubbish tip, and now they're everywhere. Gigantic things with dinosaur-like things. They're also known as sandwich snatchers and picnic pirates. You know how you're talking about evolution? Yeah. And now you're talking about birds. That yeah. That reminds me of, like, without a doubt, one of my favourite books of all time. Have I lent you this, The Beak of the Finch? No. So, ah, uh, uh, short version of the long story is I lived in Ecuador when I finished school. I was in exchange there and the Galapagos Islands are off the coast of Ecuador. So, I was very young, I was very lucky when I was younger to go to the Galapagos Islands and so I always had a bit of a fascination. I mean, yeah, it's an extraordinary place with like some insane wildlife and because... 
it has been a wildlife park for so long. The animals there are very friendly with humans and you can sort of interact with them and, yeah, you, you're, you're shocked at how placid they are in your presence. But I've always kind of been interested in the Galapagos Islands and, uh, you know, I like the idea of evolution too. But there's, there's this amazing book that I must have read, I don't know, 10, 15 years ago called The Beak of the Finch, right? It's about this couple who for about 30 years every year would go to the Galapagos Islands and study the finches throughout mating season. And they did that so regularly for so long, they watched evolution unfold in front of them. They could watch tiny variations occur in a population that would be repeated in their offspring and those traits would then propagate further down the line. Wow. So we talk, you, I mean, you talked about thousands and thousands of years, but, you know, in some species and in some environments that can happen that rapidly, you know. There's a story in that book. This story blew my mind in terms of understanding like the interplay that is going on constantly in nature. There was a, there was a severe drought on the Galapagos Islands. If I can remember this, so you, if you are a listener, please feel free to call bullshit. Get in touch with us. We're not known for our accuracy, but what we lack in that department, we make up for enthusiasm and bravado. So one year on the Galapagos Islands is an insane drought, right? And so the trees that bear the seeds that the finches on the Galapagos Islands tend to feed off because of the drought were particularly hard, right? Very hard to crack. There was a slight difference, a genetic variability in the thickness of all beaks, you know. Different birds are going to have different finches and the same family are going to have thicker beaks, you know. You look a little bit different to your brother. Your brother's mm-hmm. a little bit taller, you know. One of my sister's you know, has has a stronger jaw, whatever. You know, there are slight variations Mm. within families. And so they noticed that in that drought, the finches that survived were the finches that had beaks that were just a tiny bit thicker. We're talking one or two millimetres thicker, right? Because they were able to crack open the seeds and they were able to survive and they were able to reproduce. And so, in essence, they produce offspring over time that have thicker beaks, And we know that story. We know that story. But here's the thing. Here is the thing. This is what nature does. Yeah. Guess what the seeds do? They get harder. The seeds that aren't hard enough get eaten and so don't get spawned. So guess what the seeds end up doing? You're right. The seeds that survive are the harder seeds. So there is this interplay of evolution going on constantly not just in one direction with one species, but collectively intertwined. Wow. And so the adaptation of the finches affects the adaptation of the actual plants that they are feeding on. And it goes on and on and on. It's an extraordinary book. And it's one of those books that I I still have on my bookshelf because I cull constantly. Yeah, and there's only a few that you keep, and and I, I tend to always keep the ones that I I go back to occasionally and and love to read again, or that I remember having a moment with going, holy shit, that it, it, a whole portal of insight into how you view the world has opened, and that was definitely one of them. I'm absolutely 
gonna have to read that book. Yeah, that's cool. I but um, wait. but back to the ibis. Wait, how did the ibis get from Egypt to Toowoomba? Well, that is what we're going to explore. Our guest tonight, her name is Lyndall Kidd. She works for BirdLife Australia, which is a bird and nature conservation organisation, and she works in the conservation and research department. She studied bird populations all over the world, including here in the UK, the USA, and the Arctic tundra. Maybe she can talk to us about the intergenerational adaptation of the ibis. A real, true-life, proper bird nerd on the show. Welcome to Idle Australians, Lyndall. How are you tonight? Good evening. Fantastic. Thanks for having me, uh, especially to chat about such an iconic Australian species. Are you an, a qualified ornithologist? Is that what you are? I am, yeah. It is a thing. Um, so I did an undergraduate degree in zoology and then I further specialised and went on to study birds, which is ornithology. Um, and I've been lucky enough to track wild animal bird populations, as you've said, around the world. And I do think I have the coolest job in the world. So, <laughs> When you're becoming an ornithologist, you and Bill Oddie from the goodies, by the way, in case you're wondering, when you become an ornithologist, at what point at university do they pull the big Indiana Jones blackboard down and they flash up a picture and go, and here is Threskiornis Moluca. The Australian ibis. Yeah, that definitely happened. Um, I've, <laughs> I've got photos of it up up in my bedroom. In fact, now <laughs> it's not that well known in our um, in our field. It is, but it doesn't have the same sort of cultural charm and obsession that it gets with people around here, which is relatively new, I believe. So, yeah, talk us through that. I mean, you've been studying birds for a long time. When did this fascination that Australians, particularly on the East Coast, begin to emerge around the ibis? The ibis have sort of been increasing in numbers in our urban environment uh, since the late 1970s, actually. They're especially prolific at the moment in urban cities. And it's actually an interesting example of this term called behavioural plasticity, where an animal changes its behaviour due to some environmental Behaviors, So they're sort of a harbinger of change. So if you can look past the McDonald's rubbish, it's actually quite an interesting story that, that comes with them as they, you know, sort of infiltrate our urban environment. You had me at behavioural plasticity because I was when I was a kid, I grew up in Brisbane, when I was a kid, there were no ibis in the, in the mall, all right? The b- only birds you would see was a pigeon and occasional seagull if you're lucky. I moved away from Brisbane. I came back. And these fucking gigantic pterodactyl things with claws as big as my hands are stealing hot dogs out of kids' hands. And they're everywhere. And it seemed to happen all of a sudden. What yeah. happened? How did that happen? So, unfortunately, it's a bit of a tale of ecological woe where um, they've sort of pressure on their natural environment, which is inland Australia, estuary habitats through land clearing, as well as changing water regimes and drought through climate change. So they're really seeking out different water bodies. So they've come to sort of coastal city areas which have these sort of pools of water year-round and they've managed to adapt their food sources to things that they wouldn't traditionally eat, like hot dogs. Before we turn up, 
Where are ibises normally hanging out? Just in wetlands and marshes, not in food courts, obviously. Yes, yeah, so you can actually get a little bit of a hint if you look at their bill. So they've got this really long down curve bill and there's actually um, a little sensory organ on the tip. So that bill's actually for digging in mud and things. So exactly where you said they like to probe in wetlands and marshlands and they do still occur throughout inland Australia, essentially in any sort of wetland area. Um, and they used to be really transient species that would sort of chase these ephemeral wetlands after a big rain. They could even move hundreds of kilometres, but they're sort of living life in urban environments now because they sort of got pushed out of their natural range and there's plenty of food in the city. When you talk about behavioural plasticity, like are we seeing that in lots of native fauna, like they're having to just change what they eat, how they eat, how they come about it because we are just encroaching further and further onto their turf? That is a really interesting question. Um, I think the Australian ibis is a really obvious example to us all of this happening and happening relatively quickly, but I dare say a lot of species are actually unable to adapt that fast. So in a way, um, we've got to take our hats off to those bin chicken trash turkeys. Um, Unfortunately, a lot of our other species can't keep up with this rate of habitat loss. And Australia, shamefully, actually has one of the highest rates of extinction in the world and indeed um, the highest rate of land clearing for any developed country. So we're sort of looking at one specific case study here, but it's obviously really varied across species. A bin chicken, sorry, a ibis ibis just like... Are they like cane toads? Are they like are they like rabbits? So they just are they quite prolific breeders? Does this play into how quickly they're able to adapt? I'm just gonna have to say they're not like cane toads or rabbits because both of those species are actually introduced pest species from another country that have thrived here. Our Australian ibis uh, is often much maligned and misunderstood. It's actually an Australian native bird that sort of just shifted its range. So it is doing quite well in urban environments, but it's actually not doing very well where it sort of was traditionally from potentially in in more inland wetlands. So we're we're not really getting the full story when we see them sort of hanging out in our bins, but certainly they've adapted pretty fast and there is an abundance of food and they are breeding in sort of urban areas. So I'm aware that some um, cities undertake control measures because they're sort of getting a little bit out of hand in around some areas. What sort of measures are we talking about? Uh, they're actually a protected species because they're Australian native, so they do do some control of some of the um, nests and eggs in some of the breeding colonies in a few areas. I love that you've brought that up because I think often people refer to them as pests or as pesky or getting in the way, but they're, they're native animal like this is their home they were here before us i would love to reframe the story where people look at that bin chicken and they start to appreciate some of its sort of life history it's actually got some really cool traits that you know like i mentioned that bill for probing in the mud they've got a wingspan of almost well over a meter and they can be quite long-lived they're a monogamous species. There was a tagged bird that lived for 26 years. So like I said, if you can look past the fact that they've been pushed into garbage tips by our own actions, you might start to appreciate them a bit more. 
So they mate for life. Yeah, they do. They're socially monogamous and then they have these really interesting sort of colony nesting. They're quite a gregarious social species actually, um, but obviously a lot of that doesn't come across in urban environments. So talk to us about what, what's the interesting nesting um, uh, com- situation? What, how, how can we kind of have some empathy and I guess some affinity with the Ibis's social structure? What's really fascinating for you about their social structure? It's hard to ask me because I really like baby birds and birds. So I would, I'm super into even baby Ibis there. I said it. <laughs> oh, my God. The bird nerd is strikes. Definitely bird bird. But, yeah, just the fact that they can pair like that and then, um, you know, breed alongside one another is is quite fascinating. Um, they also have uh, ultra-sure young, so they're born, you know, sort of naked and blind and they need a lot of food from the parents and the nest and I think they take like 48 days before they sort of grow and fledge and fly off into inner city dwellings. But um, there's a lot of really cool things about them as well. They, they are doing some tracking studies on, you know, some of the adults to see sort of where they go and how far they go. And aside from eating rubbish, they've also found that they've adapted that sort of side of their life history strategies as well. I always wonder about baby fish when they, like, spawn out into the sea, you know. Instinctively, no one teaches them to swim, you know. There's part of them that just innately knows how to move through the ocean. And is that pretty common with birds as well, the idea that, you know, a child, when you watch them walk for the first time, no no one has taught them. They haven't had walking lessons, you know. And, and birds don't have flying lessons, do they? They, they? How do you view that idea that there is information that exists inside a bird that knows how to fly without it having to exercise that muscle either on its body or in its brain? Yeah, we, I mean, you hit the nail on the head when you likened it to our kids. It's instinct. It's it's in their nature. I know that sounds a bit cheesy to say, but they, they know where they're doing. And there's even studies of migratory species that show that they, they know how to fly through 23 countries, 12,000 kilometres, unaided by their parents. Mm. So they're, they're quite fascinating species. Our um, Australian ibis don't often leave Australia. There are records of some of them actually going out into um, some of our neighbouring countries. But, again, they can also fly hundreds of kilometres and the juveniles will disperse potentially without the adults showing them the way as well. So, you know, they know where these wetlands are. They know where that trash bin is. They're born knowing how to fly. But, Lyndall, surely they're not born knowing what happened to us at the park today where four of them in the classic Thoth attack formation all converged on little Wolfgang's, uh, you know, baby bag and they knew exactly the flap to go to and they didn't go for the nappies, they didn't go for the wet wipes, they went straight for the plastic container. They lifted up the flap, they went for the plastic container and they're trying to open the plastic container. Now, they've never seen this bag before. How do the birds teach each other, ah, if you see a bag like that around a small version of these these creatures, like the little one creatures, not the big ones, the little ones, there's usually food around. How do those lessons happen between the birds? That's actually what they do. You said it yourself. They, they teach one another. So I think people are surprised that birds can actually be quite intelligent and they have sort of similar social networks and they do actually learn and teach one another. I don't know specifically about Ibis, but I dare say that's why they've thrived so well in these urban environments. And interestingly, 
interestingly, there have done some studies that show they're often quite a transient species usually, like they'll cruise around all over Australia going from well, following water sources, but they have shown that the, the ones in urban environments kind of know there's food there, so they're less likely to leave. They sort of stay there and they'll, they might only go tens of kilometres rather than hundreds. In a way, that's, that's quite smart. They're sort of adapting because they know there's an abundance of food there. So Osh was talking at the start about how they're a pretty sacred bird in ancient Egypt. Do we know whether like the Australian ibis is descendant from the Egyptian one or is the Egyptian yeah. one descendant? So a lot of people do actually get them mixed up and there's people here that still call our bin chickens sacred ibis, which is potentially a bit of a nicer name than trash turkey. They're related, but they're not the same species. So some people misunderstand and think that they've sort of come over from um, the African continent, but these ones are Australian. They're just related to, to the one over there that represented the Egyptian god. And interestingly, I was reading that that Egyptian god is responsible for maintaining the universe. So, you know, when you see these in the cities and it shows us sort of habitat degradation and they've sort of been pushed out of their natural range, it's just some food for thought there. I, I am 100% behind this sort of semi-campaign that you're pushing for, for reframing our love of the ibis. But it does remind me that that the ibis almost won bird of the year a few years ago. Is, is, is yeah, that a competition yeah. that you guys run? It actually came second. It was tipped at the post by um, Australian magpie, another native bird really common around urban environments and, you know, potentially fair enough. Yeah, I mean, I would love to see the ibis as a potential segue for people to get into birds and bird watching in their own backyard. So Bird Life Australia actually run this, uh, the Aussie Backyard Bird Count in October every year where you take 20 minutes and you sit and you observe the birds around you, basically. It's really great for beginners. And birds are just such a good way for people to connect with nature. Is there any truth to the rumour that the current invasion of ibis has to do with some well-meaning conservationists in the 70s who, like, started colonies at Taronga Zoo and stuff like that? Yeah, and I saw that too, and there is a little bit of truth to that. They did it in at our Pearsville Sanctuary in Victoria as well. So apparently there was a free-flying flock of ibis and they did get out. They didn't do this 100-kilometre transient sort of looking for ephemeral wetlands they just hung out around the city so they're not really sure it's hard to know retrospectively but they potentially could have drawn some of the inland species into the urban environments but given that we actually have you know a lot of wetlands around our cities on the coast I suspect the inland population would have found it found them anyways. We'll let you go, I reckon. But did you, when you were a young kid, dream of being a zoologist, did you ever imagine in your wildest dreams that one day you'd be talking about the Australian white ibis to the host of The Bachelor on a podcast? <laughs> I'm going to go with no. <laughs> Does the ibis get a rose or not? I'm still undecided. Well, undecided on that one. Having, having spoken to you, I mean, I guess because when I'm thinking, just I'm processing this all now, it's very intense, but, you know, we see the ibis do something that we ourselves would never do, drink the juice out of a wheelie bin, and we think, what a horrendous animal, go away from me. But what they're doing is they are like, 
fuck you guys. You took my home. You've destroyed where I used to live. I'm going to learn how to live where you live. In fact, I am the harbinger of what is coming if you guys don't get your shit together and stop habitat destruction because me and my channel bill cuckoo friends and all we're all coming. We're coming and we're going to fuck up your barbecues. Exactly. <laughs> they've learned and they've learned well. So if you can look past the Bindu, start to look at some of their more interesting traits. Thanks, Lyndall. Thanks so much for having me. Amazing. If people want to uh, get around BirdLife Australia, what do they do? Yeah, definitely. I would encourage everyone, especially to take part in that Aussie Backyard Bird Count. Just jump online and go to www.birdlife.org.au. And what's the hot tip for uh, 2021 Bird of the Year? Who are you getting your, uh, who are you putting your money on? Well, I actually work on migratory species, so I'm going to have to go with migratory shorebird, and I'll let you Google and look that one up later because that's a story for another day. Definitely the best species on the planet. Good luck. (laughs) (laughs) That was awesome, man. Oh, that was really cool. How cool is she? She's awesome. Who knew that we'd find a smart, fascinating ornithologist to dig deeper on this gorgeous bird? What a story. The story of the ibis is a story that needs to be reinterpreted. We think they're the invaders. We, we think they're the pest, but we're the invaders. Yeah. They're just trying to survive and we scorn them and marginalise them. This bird that has direct links to a millennia-old sacred tradition and we've taken their land. I mean, does that remind you of anything? It <laughs> 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 does a bit. Does good, a bit. good stuff. It does a bit. I'll try to keep that in mind next time uh, a bird the size of my toddler is chasing him trying to get a sandwich out of his hand. <laughs> hey, I love that you're teaching your kid the names of the birds, but um, what's that Krishnamurti quote? The day you teach the child the name of the bird is the day the child never sees that bird again. You know, once you name something, he can only now see it as a bird. Other creatures don't look at a human and go, oh, that's a human. And all the attached backgrounding that goes with that. Once you name something to a child, it can never not see it as a named thing again. I don't know where I'm going with that. But do you understand that idea? Yeah, I get it. I see. I see it. Like what it's now it's now labeled permanently correct in his head or forever her head for life mm. it's never just this look at that incredible creature doing something that beautiful exists. yes and 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 living its life doing what it wants uh no it's a channel bill cuckoo mm. yeah and these are the things we know we know knowledge knowledge around mm. the chatterbill cuckoo and i think sometimes that it's so hard for us to forget what we know and so often it's really necessary for us to go deeper. It's the Come for the Ibis. We learn. Come for the <laughs> Ibis. Stay for the Krishnamurti. <laughs> <laughs> I love you, James Matheson, with all of my heart. That is why I love you because a conversation about bin chickens leads us to Krishnamurti and the whole kind of expansion of what we know as our own reality. People still listening. They are, dude. They are. In fact, you can email us idolaustralians at gmail.com. 
Scotty wrote in, Scott Carroll wrote in. It's really simple. James Osher, you had me at Schrodinger's credits. Keep at it. <laughs> All we ever need is for one person to get one of the gags. <laughs> and it worked. <laughs> it worked. If you do want to email us, uh, idleaustralians at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. We're also on Instagram. The best thing you can do for us, we don't have a Patreon yet. We might. We'll see how we go. The best thing you can do for us is tell someone else about the show. Uh, that's the very best thing you can do. Rate, review the show where you can, but just tell somebody about the show. Tell them, oh, I learned this thing about the Ibis today. Where? Uh, listen to James and Asha. Oh, wow, there you go. Like, just do that, and that'd be awesome. And stand up for your local bin chicken. Yeah. As James said, reframe. Reframe the look. When you see the Ibis, you're the invader. Have some empathy. Throw it a chip, bro. This episode of Idol Australians, uh, audio production was from Daryl Misson. Bree Steele uh, was our guest producer and show producer, did all the research. James sat there in a, in a beautiful white T-shirt, just looking like a Haynes underwear commercial from 1995, just like the stud that he is. It's what I do best. And um, I'm me. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.